Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. In a Wall Street Journal column in early March of this year, Walter Russell Meade wrote that there is no more important question in world politics than this. Will U.S. public opinion continue to support an active and strategically focused foreign policy? I don't know if I'm ready to go that far, uh, but there's no question that foreign policy folks have been worried for several years now about eroding public support for American foreign policy and what that means. But while most agree that the trend suggests some level of public rejection of traditional American approaches to foreign policy, there isn't yet much agreement about what the public really wants to replace it with. Some have argued that Trump's rise means the public is ready to embrace isolationism and ditch allies and free trade. But others have pointed out that Trump's America First policies aren't actually very popular. Uh, In such cases, of course, the only answer can be more data, please. Um, And on that score, we're well covered today because joining us to discuss all this is Peter Jewell, a senior policy analyst at the Center for American Progress and the co-author of a new report, America Adrift, How the U.S. Foreign Policy Debate Misses What Voters Really Want. Peter, welcome to the show. Good to be here. All right, let's start with some news, uh, shall we? Um, Donald Trump went to Japan. That sounds like the start of a bad joke. Uh, how did it go? Poorly. <laughs> um, like a bad joke then. Yeah, it's as, as with most things, Trump. I think that, uh, you know, he continued his romance with Kim Jong-un from a distance. Uh, you know, they exchanged love letters and now he's making excuses for missile launches. Uh, I mean, John Bolton isn't, you know, the most trustworthy or reliable person when it comes to foreign policy, I think. I think we would agree with all on that here. But, you know, it's not just Bolton. It's, you know, the Japanese government. A lot of people are like, and he stands up in front of Shinzo Abe, and who has made a very strong effort to cultivate Trump to play to his ego and massage that. And basically, you know, tells him, you know, I love Kim Jong-un more. Um, so it did not go well. Um, it's, you know, on one level, it's embarrassing. Uh, but on another, it's 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 disturbing to see this trend continue where, you know, it's not just Kim Jong-un, it's, you know, Putin, it's other people. Like, there's just this deep-seated admiration for authoritarian leaders uh, that Trump has. And, you know, it's comically absurd and dangerous <laughs> when it comes to North Korea, but it's it's a bigger problem than that. And we saw that and, you know, alienating, uh, you know, the Japanese government right now is probably not the best move. Yeah, you knew that the visit was going to go well, but he started it by wishing a bunch of Japanese people happy Memorial Day. Uh, that was that was not a good start to the trip. But I, I do find it interesting, you know, you're saying like, oh, his admiration for authoritarian dictators, for strongmen, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, but it's, it's interesting that the Japanese government have been trying really hard to cultivate Donald Trump, right? Sending Shinzo Abe out to play golf with him, really sort of puffing him up, you know, serving him all his favorite foods. I saw that the state dinner was uh, was steak and uh, had ice cream for dessert. Um, so, but they, they've done all of this stuff, and even then, Trump still says, "Oh, Kim Jong Un's my favorite." It's it's kind of it's almost pathological the way that he just veers towards authoritarian strongmen over any democratic leader. I mean, and you saw that with the, the Khashoggi matter, uh, the the murder last fall, early winter, where he, there was this bizarre statement he put out, like Saudi Arabia is the you know they have us over a barrel, literally, which is not true. Um, it's it's just weird that the way that he conceives these relationships as these countries have something 
on us and have leverage on us in ways that are, you know, one, inaccurate, but like to lead him to some pretty strange behavior, uh, at least from what you would expect from a, uh, a leader of a democratic country. I mean, and it's, you know, one thing to be like, okay, we need to have relationships with authoritarian countries for our interests and so forth, you know, just a pragmatic case, but this is well beyond that. Um, it's, it's, you know, like you said, it's pathological. There's something there that, you know, he just admires these people for some reason. And we can speculate as to what that is, why that is, but it, it, it's pretty apparent with this, you know, these love letters he exchanged just with Kim Jong-un and, you know, this desire to, you know, consummate whatever it is he wants to consummate with him. Yeah. And I find it strange too, that <clears throat> Trump can't seem to keep his attention focused on what the point of the trip was, you know, I, the North Korea stuff, I guess, you know, is, is in part related to Japan, but like Trump spent an awful lot of time talking about American politics in Japan, which can't have, was awkward enough. I think, you know, in terms of like norm sort of erosion, uh, sorts of things that upset people here to, to have Trump abroad insulting other American officials is just a bad look. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's just sort of par for the course with this guy. Um, but yeah, and also his ability to inability to stay on sort of message, e even loosely with what his administration has been trying to do. It's, it's, it's a bizarre situation. Yeah. 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 All right. So to another continent, um, and speaking of dwindling public support for the status quo here, um, Europe, uh, held, uh, EU parliamentary elections. Uh, many countries held sort of other scattered elections as well, but the, the two big centrist parties in Europe failed for the first time to win a majority of seats. Um, and the greens on the one hand and the nationalist parties on the other hand, sort of both did better at the sort of centrist parties expense. Um, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's very interesting that you see that um, the Greens rising up in place of the traditional center left, the Social Democrats. You saw that, I think, in the, the German national elections last year, um, or yeah, last year. And that's, I mean, I don't, I don't have an explanation for that, but that's just a very interesting development that the center left sort of vote is migrating to the Greens. Um, and that may be a function of the fact that these are proportional representation systems, whereas in you know United States and UK, you have to everyone has to get under the big tent of you know center left, center right, and that leaves them open to being hijacked by you know a far right or in the Democrats' case, possibly a far left candidate. Um, but it does sort of force you know, coll you know not collusion that's the wrong word, but a sort of congealing on uh, uh, more straightforward ideological lines. Here, you think you can you know, things can fall off and, you know, one section of the left can rise up or one section of the right. Um, but this, the, you know, the, just the collapse of the center left since, you know, the financial crisis has just been one of the more remarkable things and noteworthy things in, in Europe. Um, I mean, the UK is, we're going to, we're going to get to Brexit uh, later on, but, you know, the fact that labor got basically hijacked by a far left sectarian group has, you know, had nothing important to say about the major pressing issue of the day, you know, and that opens the, the door to uh, a party like the Lib Dems who did, you know, probably much better than anybody expected. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we can just bring the Brexit thing into this because yeah. I think some of the, the European, the, the fact that Britain had to hold the European parliamentary elections, obviously, was a condition of the EU extending the Brexit deadline. So that was that was a pretty big deal. And then, as you say, Labour, again, did very badly. And most analysts that I've heard talking about this do seem to believe it's because Labour won't take a stance on Brexit, won't take a stance on a second referendum. Um, and so a lot of that vote ended up going to other parties. But But even in the UK, this Brexit party that Nigel Farage founded that's, you know, fairly far right, that's pushing for Brexit, they got quite a large chunk of the vote. So this is, you know, the, the two trends seem to be not so much the two extremes of the political system. It's, it's not the red and the black, right? It's yeah. the, the greens and the black, which is just really strange. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's sort of flows into the, the point that the collapse of the center left, like the Social Democrats in Germany, are like they've gone, from, you know, they're very long established political party with a long, rich history and tradition. And they seem like they're on the road to extinction and that the Greens are the beneficiaries here. Um, you know, I'm not enough of an expert on German politics to explain why that in particular, but that does seem to be a, a recurring theme where you have uh, you know, the traditional social democratic center left parties just not having answers. I mean, you saw it sort of in France with Macron able to sort of carve out a, a more of an independent campaign and defeat the more established parties. Um, but it's, you know, it's something that's, it's very interesting. It would be very, very, uh, very interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about watching the European elections, um, both the, at the EU level, but, you know, nationally, uh, is that because of the proportional representation, there's a lot more transparency <clears throat> in, into the electorate's sort of mindset. And so, you know, here it's hard to know exactly how potent the far right or far left is at any given time because they never win office. Um, that doesn't mean they're not having an impact. You know, in 2016, Bernie Sanders clearly had a big impact. And in 2020, all the Democratic candidates running for are far lefter than they would have been had he not done so well in 2016. But you can't tell from electoral results because Bernie didn't win. Most of the lefties aren't going to win this year. But in Europe, you can see if if you allow things to sort of go with, with proportional representation, you get to see the center left fade, the center right fade, and there's nowhere else for those people to go. I mean, that that's why they're going to the extreme. They're not going to cross over to the other side, probably. So that's what you get. And then, you know, the way things go is the right and the left are crazy. So then the center will rebuild eventually but it'll be a new center. And the question is, what does the new center in this world look like, right? I mean, there's populist parties and authoritarian parties everywhere, including in the US, even if we don't call them parties. And this is kind of all part of the sort of the super challenge of this era, it seems. I mean, I do think it's worth pointing out that the European parliamentary elections have long been sort of the protest vote recipient of, of democratic politics in Europe. So people tend not to vote in those elections for candidates that actually make a difference because actually the EU parliament can't do very much. Um, they do tend to vote protest on issues that they feel pretty strongly about. What, what that then does, though, is, as you say, is this impact on the centrist parties, right? So in the UK, if we're talking about Brexit, we basically have a situation where Theresa May is stepping down. The Tories are saying, well, we're going to out-Brexit the Brexit party. You know, so that is the Conservatives, the mainstream centre-right party, moving closer to the extreme party because of an election result that, you know, theoretically doesn't actually mean very much. And I think you kind of see the same dynamic here in the United States, at least on, you know, the party I'm familiar with, the Democratic Party, where you have an the sense that, oh, the stampede to the left, which was brought about by, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is very charismatic and effective on social media, but 
you know, Joe Biden is kind of his entry into the presidential race. It's kind of popped that bubble a bit. The fact that he's, you know, getting the level of support he has, has sort of made people think, well, wait, that far left is maybe more bark than bite at this point. Um, and the Bernie Sanders vote was, seems to be in 2016 more of a, well, we don't like Hillary Clinton and he's sort of stuck in like the teens now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a very, that's a very good point. But I think that, you know, the German elections sort of get, you know, get to the center left just sort of collapsing. I think the center right is probably in a better position, um, at least in, in, in Germany and other places where they actually still sort of have access to the levers of power in the way that the center left doesn't. Yeah. All right. Let's do a quick hit on, on Brexit. Theresa May is going to step down. Uh, good, bad, indifferent. Does it matter? Where does Britain go from here? I mean, omni shambles. How does, how do you get worse than what, what's worse than that? I mean, <laughs> I once said I would jump off a cliff if Boris Johnson became prime minister. So um, just if find I'm a not very short cliff next time. <laughs> you know what happened. Yeah, I, I mean, this. Uh, it seems like they're just going to run into the wall without ever having made one decision, yeah. as far as I can tell. I think the odds of hard Brexit have increased substantially. Yeah. Yeah. Is is probably the outcome of this uh, political maneuvering? Yeah. Well, stay tuned. It's going to yeah. be ugly. It can. It'll get dumber. <laughs> okay. Uh, I hate to use that as the pivot to talk about <laughs> American attitudes about foreign policy. Um, I didn't say that. Um, but let's dive into it. Th this is a fantastic report. I encourage everyone listening to go take a look at it. Um, lots of cool results. Um, too many to talk about in, in one podcast. So, so Peter, if you could just start us off by summarizing some of the key, key findings, you know, wh what maybe what surprised you, you know, what do we want people to take away from this report? Well, what surprised me in particular, and I think even among our own, you know, my co-authors who, who we conducted this research and we wrote up the report and everybody else just read it. Everybody, there's so much there that everyone can take a different lead from it. Um, but the thing that struck me, and I think you get down to this, uh, you want to get down to this later, but just the level of indifference among certain segments, especially the younger uh, generations from Gen X on was, was pretty striking to me. Um, not necessarily surprising we did go through these focus groups before we fielded the poll. So it's less surprises than like, oh, that shows up here. Uh, that dynamic we saw in the focus group shows up in in certain things. But uh, the, the standout result to me was sort of like the, well, we want, we need to invest here at home in things like infrastructure and education, healthcare to be competitive in the world. We don't necessarily need to plow more money into the military. Uh, in fact, if, you know, if it's a choice between military and domestic spending, domestic spending. Well, we want that. So at, at the same time, I don't think people think of it as a, necessarily a zero sum proposition. Uh, but like that sort of uh, dynamic is, you know, the, the concern about China and our, you know, future uh, as, as a country in terms of how we're going to make our way in the world and less, less sort of like this retrenchment, you know, isolationist. I know it's probably a dirty word around, around these precincts, but sort of like this more navel gazing sort of focus. I think it's, you know, people are open to being persuaded about foreign policy in ways that I don't think our debate in Washington really sort of reflects. Um, we, we tend to assume like, oh, they're just impervious to like, they just want to stick at home. And I think the uh, idea that, you know, it's just a bunch of native knee-jerk isolationism out in the heartland, so to speak, is wrong. Uh, and that we like foreign policy, at least tend to assume that. And like, they, so they tend not to engage in the persuasion, make the case for what they want to do. Um, and I think that that's a major sort of finding that at least the message I would like to take to all of us here in DC. 
Right. So there's more communication that could be done. Yes. Yeah. Now it's interesting because I, I think that, um, the, the blob, if I can use that uh, phrase, <clears throat> uh, does panic quite a bit. Oh yeah. Uh, every time they see an indication that maybe the public has, has stopped supporting. Um, and I, I think there, there is sort of this presumption, um, that, um, well, that, that, I guess that's a question for me, though, is I, I, I get a lot of people asking me, because I study these things, whether there's a whether they can change those numbers just by talking or whether you actually need to do different things to change the numbers. And I sort of fall on the line of I think you need to do things. I don't think talking is going to move the needles very much. Um, but But you're saying you think there's more room to move the needle than than most would imagine. I think that's true. I mean, I I wouldn't disagree with your contention to that you need to do things. Um, whether it's you know whether you and I would agree on the things that would be need to be done would is a separate question. Um, but I do think that there's room. I I think the thing that I got from the focus group sitting in and watching that is that there is just there is no sense of what we're trying to do in the world there. And it's and from the poll results, it does seem like it's a post Cold War sort of thing. Whereas the generational breakdown, you have the boomers and the silent generation are much more in favor of sort of what we would call traditional internationalism. And they came up in you know World War II and the Cold War. There was a reason for that, for them to think that we should be engaged in that way. After the Cold War, there's really no, no reason for anybody to feel like we should be engaged in the way that we are. I mean, Gen X mostly came up in the 90s. The war on terror didn't really accomplish much of anything, so people are like skeptical of that. People like Obama in the focus groups, the, you know, especially on you know center and center left onward. But it's just that they couldn't. He didn't leave a framework behind for his foreign policy, which is where I think a lot of people actually are, in terms of you know the nuclear. You know, we would rather have a nuclear agreement with Iran than what we're seeing now. Um, but. They just don't have anything, any sort of conceptual framework that like, oh, yes, this is the Obama foreign policy. This is what we want to do in the world. And to a certain extent, he got sort of overwhelmed with the things that happened in the second term with ISIS. And don't they all? Yes. Yes, sure. And he didn't leave that sort of thing. Well, well, that's that's a good sort of lead in um, to the next question, which is there's a really interesting part of the report where you take 20 different sort of attitude questions and you use those to identify four different foreign policy worldviews or segments in the electorate. Um, tell, tell us about how you did that and, and what you found, because I think that's really uh, interesting. So it's, it was factor analysis. I'm not the statistician necessarily. Um, so they, you know, we took these uh, sort of attitudinal sort of, uh, sort of like an America first battery with things like, oh, we should, you know, cramp, clamp down on immigration, you know, the sort of things you would hear from Trump and sort of express probably in more coherent and uh, acceptable terms to a lot of people, um, you know, an international engagement, sort of a military engagement sort of thing, uh, sort of, so these like four batteries of uh, questions, you know, rank the questions on, you know, on a scale and see what you get from the answers and then sort of cluster these different groups. So, I mean, that's sort of my layman's. To, <laughs> Absolutely clear. Um, but so what we found was there are, you know, there are about a third of the population is sort of Trump nationalists. They're in favor of you know, what Trump is doing. They're concerned about immigration. They want to you know, spend a lot of money on defense, uh, that sort of thing. Not necessarily use it, I don't think, in, in terms of like Iraq, but they can be very much persuaded to do that, as, as we saw uh, with George W. Bush. Uh, and then you have some uh, about 
less than 20% uh, traditional internationalists. These are the older Democrats, Republicans, um, who came up in, a, in an era where that was the norm and there was a reason to engage abroad. Uh, but the, the, and then there's the global activists, which are, I forget the exact percentage, but you know, they're sort of like your center left do-gooder types who want, you know, want to address climate change, poverty, equal rights, that sort of thing, sort of take like their domestic priorities global in some way. Um, I, and then there are, then there are the apathetic, uh, which is about another fifth of the, the, the population who are just indifferent to questions of foreign policy. They don't have any strong opinions. Um, that's so. fascinating. And I think, you know, that's, um, that's an important finding in and of itself. And one that we don't often sort of talk about, um, because we assume all citizens are good democratic yes. citizens and that doesn't exactly fill, you know, that box. But, but on the other hand, they are, uh, I think, as you found younger and, yes. and people tend to grow into interest in politics and public affairs as they get older. So it's, it, we, we don't know yet how, how disengaged they'll stay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> over time. So that, that'll be interesting to watch. Um, and so I think it's fascinating that, you know, Trump's kind of got the 33% uh, nationalist. The, um, I was looking at these numbers and, and this is a little wonky, so pardon me, but um, your, your factor analysis clusters um, mirror pretty closely, uh, and it's partly because of the questions you use, but pretty closely Eugene Whitkopf's old faces of internationalism where you find uh, there's a dimension along support for cooperative internationalism, a dimension of support for militant sort of militarism in international mm -hmm. politics. Um, and one of the guiding dimensions that he found back in the Cold War was um, anti-communism yes. was another driver. And so since you don't have that now, one of the things he sort of first postulated after 9-11 was, well, maybe anti-terrorism, but that actually didn't turn out to be it, but nationalism turns out to be, right? And that's actually a really good, I mean, it's just almost the same as saying anti-communist to saying you're sort of a pro-Americaist. And so it's really interesting that you guys found that, I thought. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, I think the anti-communism was a glue in a lot of ways yeah. that it, not just, you know, the right, but the center left here as well, um, at that freight after Vietnam. Yeah. And I think the anti-terrorism issue, I mean, it could have been, but then we had Iraq, which was just a total, yeah. uh, uh, recognized by people as, uh, 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 not the right move. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. so that kind of, that probably shot you know, that, uh, opportunity, so to speak to, to, um, you know, that just didn't work out. And then Obama didn't really put forward a framework for foreign policy that could command attention. So I think that that, like, I would say that, yeah, that nationalism has replaced anti-terrorism and there is certainly a significant sort of anti-Muslim animus among a lot of the Trump, you know, nationalist types, uh, that sort of threads through that you can see developing uh, under the you know the Bush administration and especially coming you know coming into prominence with uh you know the secret Muslim atheist president Obama <laughs> but uh so that's been there for a while and I think that that's a that's a good observation that that certain form of virulent you know nationalism uh has taken the place of anti-communism and sort of absorbed the anti-terrorism uh, dimensions from the you know previous Republican administration. 
I mean, what I find really interesting there is is a lot of these things are very sort of attitudinal, right? Yes. Um, they're not they're not based on any deep knowledge of international affairs, and in some ways, actually having some ignorance almost seems to make it a little easier to hold these attitudes. Um, you know, whether it's anti communism, whether it's nationalism, um, and I think that's that is something else that your report really highlights is how Americans, you know, outside of sort of this Beltway bubble actually typically don't know that much about specific foreign policy issues. There's a lot of rational ignorance going yeah. on there. Um, you know, could could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting things we observed in the focus groups is people uh, would often talk about it, foreign policy and international relations in terms of neighborhoods and families and like relating it to how they would interact with other people and, you know, with the United States and the place of them and other nations, you know, sort of seeing it as... It, uh, uh, in a, as a met metaphorical global neighborhood, even if they might disparage and say, you know, the international community doesn't exist. So that's that was actually very interesting. And I think it led uh, John Halpin, one of our co-authors, to incorporate these uh, social trust measures in into to our poll. Um, he could give you a better uh, explanation as to what those are and how they play out. But it just, the level of trust does seem to affect uh, whether you're in favor of more international engagement or not. Um, so, and I think that that's a very interesting sort of metaphor because I was, as we were doing this, I went back and, you know, read some of FDR's old speeches before World War II and sort of the, the Lend-Lease analogy of, you know, I'm going to lend you a fire hose. That would actually work for many people in terms of explaining foreign policy. Uh, whereas, and I think this gets back to the communication problem, uh, a foreign policy, at least dealing these, you know, grand abstracts of the liberal international order and the rules of the system and so forth, that just like, just, you know, it doesn't register for me necessarily. And I work on this every day. And for people who have day jobs, it's just, I mean, it's, they're not going to, it's not going to make any sense to them. I mean, to some extent, that actually suggests where some of the discontent about current foreign policy trends comes from, right? If you conceive a foreign policy in in the, the structure of your own life, then you will be motivated to ask, you know, why am I protecting my neighbor's house when he's richer than I am, like Europe? You know, you can see how people get there just from putting it in that yeah. kind of mental frame mm -hmm. quite easily. Yeah, I think people are a lot less interested in lending a fire hose when they think their house is on fire. Yes. Um, like I think people generally today. I, I think, like, yeah, oh. I think it's like the thing that we got from the focus groups, especially was less like, you know, we should just let the world burn down and focus on ourselves, but it's more of like the, uh, the old airline sort of oxygen mask thing, you know, assist, you know, make sure it's, uh, you have got your own mask on before you help others. I think that that's sort of the attitude that, uh, I got from the focus, from observing these focus groups was, you know, we're not against involvement in the world or engagement. We don't like what Bush did, but you know, we're, we don't, we don't, that hasn't like made us withdraw completely, but we do have our own problems. We need to address those before we go on and feel like we can start helping other people. There was actually like a, a pretty decent sense of like humanitarian responsibility and that sort of thing that came across in the focus groups, but it's, yeah, it's, it's much more of a, you know, <laughs> Make sure you're okay before you help others. Well, that's the genius of Trump's line, right? America first is correct. That absolutely should be U.S. foreign policy. What would it? Why would you ever conceive of a foreign policy that didn't put the United States first? That would be weird. That'd be someone else's foreign policy. It, the problem is, what do you mean after that? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, what's second? Uh, and you know, if it's still America, then maybe we start having a problem, or yeah. third, or what? You know, whatever. But uh, no, I think that's very interesting. So all right, so so you know we. 
people are confused about what the U.S. is actually doing. They're not necessarily sure they are up with or down with, uh, you know, <laughs> um, everything that's going on. What, what do they want? What did you find out? What are the priorities for voters these days? Well, there are, you know, number one, I mean, there are a number of questions we asked that could get at this question, but I'm going to go at this with like the priorities, I think, for the next five years, the responses we got. One was terrorism. That was sort of the big, uh, you know, 63%, I believe, said that that would be their top priority is keeping themselves safe from terrorism, which, you know, we can debate why that is or is, you know, why, why that's the case. But the fact is that it is. I mean, it doesn't, and this sort of gets at a number of tensions within public opinion where people are, you know, skeptical about the, you know, continued involvement in the Middle East one way or, you know, military or even non-military, I think. They just want to be done with that part of the world. But at the same time, they're very concerned about terrorism. So they're in the focus groups, we had a lot of, we asked questions about Trump had just announced, well, we're going to get out of Syria now. We asked questions about that. And people were like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't really want to be in this part of the world anymore. But, you know, there are these terrorists there and I'm afraid of, you know, we take our foot off the gas, it'll uh, boomerang on us. So, I mean, and that's definitely reflected in the concern about about terrorism. Uh, next, there was, I believe, and I might be might be my numerical dyslexia here, confusing these two things, but I think 46% wanted to safeguard democracy here. So it's not democracy promotion, it's democracy protection at home. Uh, and then 40% was, you know, basically good jobs, high wages, sort of economic issues. And a lot of, especially in the folks groups, you know, people were asked about their foreign policy priorities and it came back to domestic issues, which you know, makes a lot of sense, um, but doesn't necessarily get at the question. But I think that that also sort of feeds into the uh, response we got for emphasis on, you know, investing at home to be a better player, you know, more competitive player in the world, especially when you have one of the, one of the complaints we heard all the time in our focus groups was that China was eating our lunch. They have a plan. We don't have a plan. Um, and that has not changed over the last couple of years with, you know, even even though President Trump talks a lot about China and how unfair it is and, and so forth, uh, we still still don't seem to have a plan which, you know, slapping tariffs for to what end, I, I couldn't tell you. But yeah. One thing I found really interesting about that section was that, and, and, and let me just make sure I have this right. I think you, you gave people like, you know, 10 priorities or possible priorities yes. and ask people to rank them. Yes. And then the percentages you reported were the percentage of people who put it in their top three. Yes. Only one issue had more than 50% putting it in their top three, and that was terrorism. Yes. And that was true, not just overall, but in every partisan breakout. Yes. And I thought, well, the Republicans were a little bit they more, were more. Yes. on the same page, but even so for Republicans, not that much on the same page and Democrats weren't. And in general, People, the American public, I was really surprised by just how scattershot the top three was for the American public. And it really does suggest that when people are looking out at the world, they're seeing whatever they're projecting onto it, not necessarily a very clear framework or vision that has been provided by elites in Washington. Yes. Right? Yes. Because if you imagine during the Cold War, people would say Soviets, 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 those would be the top three. And the reason would be because, duh, yeah. that's the only thing anyone in Washington ever says. And now you, I guess people in DC are saying all sorts of things and, and maybe some of the things they're saying aren't very compelling or, yes. or whatever, right? Or they've been saying the same thing about terrorism for so long, it's kind of losing some traction and whatever. 
So I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's very interesting and it suggests that the playing field is, is open. Yes. Right. Moving yes. forward. And I think we see this inside the beltway too, that there is a bigger debate now about grand strategy. Emma has been part of this recently around town, you know, um, uh, that I don't think was here 10, 15 years ago. People assumed that the public was just going to keep sort of saluting the flag and we're going to keep on, but not anymore. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's right. I think that, I mean, 10 years ago, there might've been a window, but we had bigger problems with the, the, you know, financial crash and the economic issues. So that was kind of put on the back burner and Iraq was still going on. So I think that that's sort of opened up in ways that are, you know, it's positive, but unfortunately we had to go through Donald Trump four years of Donald Trump to get to this point, which is, I'm not sure the cost is worth the, the, the benefit here uh, on a strict, you know, cost benefit analysis. But I do think that that's, you know, important point to make. I think, you know, partly it's because I think we mentioned this at the start. We talk to ourselves a lot in DC. We're convinced, you know, we're talking to ourselves, not talking to people um, where they are and what they're concerned about or providing any sort of concrete or contextual sort of uh, case for why we should be, not not even like the particular structures, why we should just be engaged in the world and not just sort of focused on ourselves in the way that Trump uh, and his you know, supporters seem to think. Uh, so it's, you know, it is open in a lot of ways that I think there are certain like, I don't want to say third rails because that's too strong, but certain sort of bumpers that you, you will, you need to have some sort of coherent and compelling answer about terrorism because people are are scared about it and it's not simply you know like telling people that they're more likely to drown in their bathtub All right aside from terrorism though let's it's in the beginning of the report you guys sort of throw out what i think is really a, one of the 64 dollar questions which is um do our western societies and you know the u.s in particular are we facing a genuine attitudinal break um with the old ways i mean americans either today or younger Americans think of things so differently, we can never go back to the levels of support for traditional sorts of foreign policy that we had before. Or is this just sort of war fatigue, you know, war on terror fatigue? And, and once someone puts that back in the box, Americans will go back to the same sort of thing they did before. Did you get a feeling from the report? I mean, maybe you just can't answer that. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I'll venture some speculation here. I, I won't want to say I, this is the last word on it or definitive in any way, but I think it's a combination of both. But I do think the sort of the generational attitudinal shifts, like I was saying earlier, they happened before uh, before 9-11. They happened with the end of the Cold War and people just growing up in a different context and having different formative experiences um, than, than the boomer generation or the, the silent generation, those traditional bastions of traditional internationalism. So I think that th and it's so it's not so much as like a sharp break it's like oh there's are so radically different but it's just sort of a different sort of acculturation process and people and i think part of the support and again this is just me totally being speculative here for the sort of global activism sort of rests on a presumption that the status quo will perpetuate itself indefinitely that you know there are no major security problems there won't be you know the trading regime is good and it will keep going forever and so I, I, I would question that underlying belief of that I think this group, this cohort has, but I do think that there is, you know, there is a war fatigue that is, that was clear in the focus groups. Uh, people aren't certain what we got from it. Although that one of the questions we put in a very aggressive sort of like these wars were pointless and we wasted a lot of time and money. P 
people aren't prepared to go that far, but they are like, so what did we actually gain from this? And the answer is not much. Um, so I think that there's that aspect to it and it sort of combines with this more subtle generational shift that occurred with sort of like the more of the later Gen Xers onward. Right. All right. Let's, let's bring it home. If, um, if you were, uh, sitting in the white house or, uh, in a office with a member of Congress and briefing them, uh, on this report, what would you suggest that they take from this? What is it? What, what do they need to do next? Well, I would suggest, you know, mentioned the terrorism issue. So I'll just lay that to the side, but need to find a way to connect the domestic investments in things like infrastructure and healthcare and education to a foreign policy uh, vision is maybe too strong, but like an idea of how these sync up. How does this make us more competitive vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, especially? Not that you know we need to, people are very cautious about relations with China and Russia. They don't. I think this is a conflict aversion that is very much understandable and a sort of a default. And I yeah I, I I totally understand where people are coming from. Nobody wants to fight over some pointless rocks in the South China Sea. Um, but sort of this idea that this is a global sort of competition for our own future here and how we're doing things in the United States, how we will uh, prosper, that connection needs to be made. And it's not being made. I think, you know, like the House Democrats have a domestic policy plan, but it's very loosely, if at all, connected to ideas of what America should do in the world and how that fits in. Um, so that would be my, my main sort of focus uh, on that, is, you know, recommendations. How does this connect into our standing in the world? And I think, you know, people like to, like, oh, standing prestigious, you know, it's just a bunch of, uh, you know, hooey. Uh, could use stronger words, but, um, but I, I think actually we underestimate that. And I think it underestimates the way the public thinks about it. Like they want they don't necessarily need to be number one in all things, but they want to know that the United States will be competitive and will have these opportunities for them. I mean, it's sort of a basic sort of faith in the future, I guess, and sort of tying the, you know, tying those issues together in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, yeah, that's really, that, that's really interesting in large part because I have not seen any 2020 candidate do that. You know, I've, I have seen 2020 candidates try to marry domestic and foreign policy, but with people like Elizabeth Warren, it's far more about a, a fairly aggressive international agenda in service of sort of fighting global corruption, which that, that doesn't really sound like what you were saying. And that doesn't really sound like what this report suggests people want. No, no. We te like we tested that sort of message um, in some of our qualitative stuff. And I think it's in, we asked it in the, the polling too. And that just sort of was a dud. It, like, it's not like people were strongly opposed to it. They're just like, eh, whatever. It's not like, a, it's not, compelling vision for them. Um, they don't think like fighting global corruption and, you know, pushing back against authoritarianism, at least in the language we gave them, are compelling. And I think partly that's to do with the fact that it is a certain level of abstraction um, in the same way the liberal international order is. Maybe not quite, but because you can put Vladimir Putin's face and Kim Jong-un's face on this, but um, it's just not compelling to people whose concerns are, are more competitive and protect like democracy protection versus promotion uh, i think is a much more compelling message than you know we're going to fight authoritarian corruption all over the world so 
And that sounds like a good place to end it. We're in search of a compelling connection yes. between the domestic and the international. All right. Um, that's what we got time for today, folks. Um, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, Peter, for joining us. Um, thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman. And to everyone for listening, um, to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at PowerProblems. And if you like the show, please don't forget to leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time.